It is good to be able to be with you online today and to uh, worship together even though we're kind of apart. We still have one heart that we're lifting up together to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to the book of Luke, and we're going to kind of do some jumping through there, the first chapter of Luke. But to begin with, have you ever seen this movie called The Miracle on 34th Street? In this movie, there's this little girl by the name of Susan, and she has been taught by her mother that to only believe in things that are concrete, things that are reasonable. When a fellow by the name of Chris Kringle is hired by her business that she works for, um, he's going to be Santa Claus during the Christmas season. The unique thing is that Chris has been claiming, actually, that he is the real Santa Claus. Now, Susan's mother's new boyfriend, Fred, he, uh, he's called upon to defend Chris in court because of things that happened throughout the, the event there around Christmas time. And, and, and not knowing any other way to defend Chris, Fred announces to the world that he's going to prove that this man really is Santa Claus, much to the chagrin of, of Susan's mother who, who only believes in things that are safe and reasonable. And yet Fred's going to prove to the world somehow that Chris Kringle is the real Santa Claus. He, Fred makes this statement in the movie, and he says, Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to do. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. That's interesting. During the trial, the judge He's, he's hoping to provide an answer for that age-old question, does Santa Claus really exist? And he comes to the conclusion, this is what the judge finally realized, that he comes to the conclusion that if you believe in something strongly enough, then it makes it true. However, in reality, just believing in something doesn't make it necessarily true. So there are a lot of people who believe in Santa Claus. And, and they, will, they will stand and, 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 and utter that He is real and no matter what. And they believe in miracles such as flying reindeer and a rather large man coming down your chimney at night and bringing with Him loads of presents and, and giving millions of gifts to children all around the world. And they put their faith in that and they believe that. All of this would take a great deal of faith to accept because there are miracles that surround Santa Claus. Now, according to an internet article that I read, it's called The Mathematics of Christmas. It was written by Dr. Keith Devlin. He's a dean of science at the college. He's the dean of science at St. Mary's College in California. And he's also a senior researcher for the Stanford University. Here's how it would have to happen to work, he says, at least back in December of 2000 when he wrote the article. Things may have changed a little bit since then, but I think we kind of get the picture. He says, let's assume that Santa only visits those children who are in the eyes of the law, that is, those who are legal under the age of 18. So there are roughly 2 billion such individuals in the world. However, Mr. Devlin says, Santa started his annual activities long before diversity and equal opportunity became issues, and as a result, he doesn't handle those who are Muslim or Hindu or Jewish or Buddhist children or other faiths, just those who are Christians. 
And that reduces his workload significantly, down to about mere 15% of the total number of children in the world, namely 378 million. However, the crucial figure is not the number of children, but he says the number of houses that Santa has to visit. So according to the most recent census data back in 2000, the average size of a family in the world is 3.5 children per household. Well, thus, Santa would have to visit 108 million individual homes. So, of course, as everyone knows, Santa only visits the good children, but we can surely assume that on an average, at least one child of those three and a half within each household probably meets that criterion. That's quite a challenge. However, he says, by traveling east to west, Santa can take advantage of the different time zones, and that gives him 24 hours. Santa can complete the job if he averages 1,250 households per second. In other words, for each Christian household with at least one good child, Santa has one in 1,250th of a second to park his sleigh, dismount, slide down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, consume the cookies and milk that have been left out for him, climb back up the chimney, get back into the sleigh, and move on to the next house. Now, to keep the math simple... Devlin says, let's assume that these 108 million stops are evenly distributed around the earth. That means Santa is faced with a mean distance between households of around 0.75 miles. And the total distance Santa must travel is just over 75 million miles. Hence, Santa's sleigh must be moving at 650 miles per second. Now, that's 3,000 times the speed of sound. A typical reindeer, they can run at most 15 miles per hour. That's quite a feat Santa performs each year. Well, what happens, he says, when we take into account the payload of a sleigh? Assuming that the average weight of presents Santa delivers to each child is about two pounds, the sleigh is carrying 321,000 300 tons, and that's not counting Santa himself, who, judging by all those familiar pictures, is no lightweight. On land, a reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds, and of course, Santa's reindeer, they can fly. True, no species of reindeer has been known to fly. However, biologists estimate that there are some 3,000 species of living organisms yet to be classified. And, and while most of those are insects or germs, we cannot rule out flying reindeer. Now, there is a dearth of reliable data, he says, on flying reindeer. But let's assume that it's a good specimen can pull 10 times as much as a normal reindeer. This means that Santa needs 214,200 reindeer. Thus, the total weight of this airborne transportation system is in excess of 350,000 tons, which is roughly four times the weight of the RMS Queen Elizabeth, which was the world's largest ship. Now, 350,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates an enormous air resistance, and the heat, well, 
That'll heat up the reindeer in the same fashion as a spacecraft re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. And, and the two reindeer in the lead pair will each absorb some 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second. In the absence of a NASA-engineered design heat shield, this will cause them to burst into flames spontaneously exposing the pair of reindeer behind them. The result will be a rapid series of deafening sonic booms, and the entire reindeer team is vaporized within 4.26 thousandths of a second. Meanwhile, Santa himself will be subjected to centrifugal forces 17,500 times greater than gravity. Now that would do wonders for his waistline. Now, we talk about this, and it's a lot of fun to play games along with the myth, and sane adults don't accept fantasy for reality. But the theme of the miracle on 34th Street is that it doesn't matter if the story is real or not. The important thing is that you simply believe in Santa strongly enough, and he becomes reality for you. Now, the difference between what is actual truth and what is determined as relative truth is important for us to understand. For instance, if you think that you can run off the edge of a cliff and defy gravity like the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, you've got another thing coming. It doesn't matter how strong you believe that, eventually gravity is going to take over and you are going to descend rapidly to the bottom of that cliff. And if you believe with all your heart, that I'm going to preach for just five minutes doesn't make it so either. Belief is of real value, but only if it's justified by fact. Now, the actual story of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, also involves a miracle. But this one happens on an unknown street in Nazareth some 2,000 years ago. And a young lady named Mary was told that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. Well, so what, you might say? I mean, births happen all the time, but this one was slightly a little bit different. You see, Mary was a virgin. And let me ask you, do you really believe in the miracle of the virgin birth, or do you think that that part was just made up. It takes a miracle. And it's the miracle of the incarnation literally true, or is it a myth that we have to pretend to believe so long as it just makes it seem real? Let's look at the book of Luke as Luke writes for us this story. So chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Here's where our story takes place. Luke tells us that it was in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, well, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
and he will be great, and, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is, in, is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, now three times in this chapter of Luke 1, Luke points out that Mary is a virgin. Notice he's trying to make a point that this conception of Jesus within her womb is a miracle. This has never happened before. This goes against all nature and all science, but all of a sudden she's going to have this baby, and it's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle can be defined as an act of God contrary to the laws of nature which we understand them to be. It's an event when God sort of overthrows the natural laws and He establishes or that He has already established, and now He intervenes somehow supernaturally to make things just a little bit different. And Luke relates this miracle as fact, not fiction. He's telling us this is true. Now, most fictional stories, like the ones that we read at Children at Bedtime, they kind of start off with that familiar phrase, once upon a time. But when you read the story of Jesus, it doesn't begin once upon a time. Matter of fact, Luke begins the gospel narrative here in Luke chapter 1, verse 3. He says, And it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely. In other words, having done my own examination and inspected all this, he says, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, I want to invite you this morning to join me as, as we take another look at, at Luke's account of the angel telling Mary that she was going to have a baby. May it reinforce our faith in the reality of how God became man through this miracle of a virgin birth. To begin with, faith in the miraculous is crucial. Christianity begins with the basic notion that miracles are a reality, even though they go against nature. They are, they're uncommon and they are mysterious, but they are fundamental to the supernatural plan of God. And the Bible speaks to us about three major miracles that I believe we must accept as true to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be a Christian, these three things have to be a part of our faith. First of all, a Christian must believe in the miracle of creation. When you think about something as complex as the human body, or, or to be even more specific, even looking at the human brain, how can anyone conclude that the, uh, there is no designer that was related to that and helped to create all this? The Bible tells us in Psalm 14, verse 1, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. But the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
when even looking at all creation and even the design of ourselves, and we would say there is no God. How can that be? Now, a few years ago, Jay Leno, when he was leading a talk show, he, he joked that there was an atheist who produced a new Christmas movie called it The Coincidence on 34th Street. But think about it. If you reject creationism, you have to believe that this whole world was an incredible series of coincidences that involved pretty much from nothing, which exploded into something, and then gathered itself together to what we have now. I believe it takes more faith to believe in that than it does to believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the second miraculous thing we need to believe in is this. A Christian must believe in the miracle of the incarnation. Now it's fundamental to our faith to believe that the fact that God revealed Himself to us through Jesus Christ, born as a baby, is essential to our faith. John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, that, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, John says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he also tells us in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's telling us that God somehow came into this world and, and became flesh and blood, like you and me. He became a living being, which is totally different than his own character. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 7.14, he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, if you were with us last week, you will remember what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. The virgin birth is essential to our faith because it fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that God now is with us. I mean, all of this demonstrates that, that God is intervening in His world, and it shows that Jesus is God's Son, not just some illegitimate child of a, of a human father. To be a, a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus is not just an impressive historical figure, but you have to believe that He is a supernatural being miraculously entering into this world in a way that goes against all natural sciences. Now, thirdly, a Christian must also believe in the miracle of the resurrection. This is our third one. First, you know, we have to talk about that we need to believe in creation, now we need to believe in the incarnation, and now we need to also believe in the resurrection. The resurrection primarily of Jesus. I mean, it's pretty obvious seeing that the entire movement of Christianity is based upon the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Though He was killed on a cross, He was buried in a tomb, and then yet He rose back to life again. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that's the resurrection, you'll be saved. So it kind of goes without saying that if you don't believe in the miracle of the resurrection, you can't be saved. We're still lost in our sins. We're hopeless. We're dying to ourselves. 
It's the main stipulation for acceptance into the kingdom is faith in a living Christ, not one who is dead and buried. Denying the resurrection also means you'll have no hope for life after death for yourself. Because if Jesus, who was perfect, if he didn't make it, neither can we. That's what Paul was telling us in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, beginning in verse 17. He writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the second aspect today I want you to look at is this, that, that doubting the miraculous, it's common. I mean, it's every day. It's, it's normal for people. People are always doubting miracles. We, we see that uh, each and every day when somebody tells us something unique is happening, we, we come at it with skepticism. So let's go back to our passage and reread that little bit there of the conversation with Mary and the angel, beginning in verse 34. <coughs> and Mary said to the angel, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, has conceived a son, and, and this is in the, the sixth month, with her who was called barren. In other words, she was not able to have children, and now she's in her sixth month of pregnancy. And he says in verse 37, powerful statement here, the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's interesting that the first person that's questioning the miraculous event of a virgin birth was Mary herself. She's like, I, I don't get this. How, how, can, how can this happen to me? I, it doesn't make sense. And her initial response was, no, what an honor it was, or, or how privileged I am, or why did you pick me? Her response is, how can this happen? Because I'm still a virgin. Now we all know that pregnancy was contrary to the law. We all know that this pregnancy that she has goes contrary to the law of nature. And so even Mary herself was kind of puzzled about it, questioning why is it, how is it, I don't understand. Another person who had questions about Jesus later on was John the Baptist. Now we know that John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus and he was there when the Spirit descended from heaven upon Jesus at his baptism and he heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my son whom I love and am well pleased. And, and he's the one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had this idea but John finds himself now in prison because Herod the Tetrarch has put him there because he spoke out against an illegitimate relationship he was having. And so in this moment while they're there, John is questioning whether or not 
Jesus really is the Messiah. And he's starting to have doubts. And so John's followers, they tell him all about what Jesus has been doing and, and what the people were saying about Jesus. And, and, and so John sends a group of his followers to Jesus to ask him if he truly is the one that they've been waiting for for so many years, that they've been looking for, and, and that there really is nobody else and so these followers, they go to Jesus and they ask him the question, John wants to know, are you really the one? And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many whom were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Jesus answers John's disciples, he tells them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what did Jesus think about John's doubting? Does he condemn John for not believing fully in who he was? Well, let's go on and read a little bit more there in verse 24 of Luke 7. So when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than than he. Even one of Jesus' own disciples doubted in the miraculous events of Jesus and, and who he was. Uh, one of the disciples by the name of Thomas. So in John chapter 20, after Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he went and visited his disciples and he appeared to them. And so John 20, verse 23 through 25, it says, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the, the mark of the nails, and I place my, my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas was having a problem trusting in the miraculous. How does Jesus respond to Thomas? Does he condemn him for his doubts, for his misbelief, for his lack of faith? Let's look what he says there in verse 26 through 29 of John 20. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. 
Now listen, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Faith. Faith in the miraculous. Now let me ask you, do you ever question the identity of Jesus? Who He really is? I mean, like Mary or or John or or even Thomas? I mean, do you question that that He is really the Son of God, that He came into this world, that that He was born within this immaculate conception of, of the womb in Mary? We are bombarded all the time by things that cause many Christians to have doubts about Jesus' identity and His divinity. And you wonder, was He really born of a virgin? Or is it just the writer's way of enhancing the legend? Is He really the Son of God or was He just some skillful, knowledgeable teacher who taught in a unique, different way? You wonder, was he really born of that virgin? And, and maybe you're, you're totally convinced years ago that when you were young, but, but life has been hard and you've been wounded by the things in this world, and now you begin to wonder, is all this about Jesus really true? And you wonder if the miracles in the Bible are, are legitimate. Is, is it really God-breathed or are there errors and exaggerations in the Scripture? Maybe you feel guilty for having such doubts, but you think that you're a horrible Christian for entertaining such questions within your own mind, and and maybe you just don't have faith because you're still doubting these things and you're asking questions. But let me offer you some encouragement here. If you experience doubts about the supernatural, you're in excellent company. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she doubted. Thomas doubted. The apostle of Jesus and John the Baptist, they, they all doubted. And even though they stood nose to nose with him, and even in their doubts, they were loved by Jesus. And he loves us, even when we might question things. Some of the world's greatest scholars became believers in the supernatural as a result of their honest doubts. One such is C.S. Lewis, I mean, C.S. Lewis, acknowledged by both the religious and the secular communities, is one of the most intelligent, brilliant scholars and teachers that this world has seen. He's just one example. Now, early in C.S. Lewis's teaching career, he was an atheist. But as he began to study a little bit more, the Lord opened his eyes and made a believer out of him. And soon after, he wrote a book entitled, Miracles. He admits that there are times when Christianity looks highly unbelievable, but then again, when he was an atheist, there were times that it looked highly unbelievable as well for the things that he believed. Now, the Lord has always been very patient with honest doubters. He had a way of inviting people to investigate the evidence for themselves. Remember the tactic with John the Baptist? He sent his messengers back to John with evidence of what? Miracles. And then he left that up to John to determine whether or not he really was the Messiah. And John concluded from that that he was. He didn't scold John for his disbelief. And he's not afraid of our questions either. 
He wants us to believe. No, I want us to notice how patient the angel Gabriel was with Mary. I mean, after she began to express her doubts, he gave her a detailed explanation of exactly how this miracle would pan out. Listen again, verse 35. And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary's response in verse 38 is a unique response, I think. Mary said, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed her. I don't know if many of us would be able to say that. Listening to this and all of a sudden knowing that this this can't happen, but when the angel simply gives her this understanding to better clarify to her what's going to take place within her, she simply says, okay, let it be so. I'm going to put my faith in you. You see, Mary's doubts, they were answered. And though she didn't fully understand, she accepted her special role by faith. Later, Mary gives a song of praise. Uh, we see in, in Luke chapter 2. And she's, she's, when she meets Elizabeth, her cousin, who's pregnant with John the Baptist, and we know that, that all of a sudden there is this joyous announcement that the baby within Elizabeth is jumping and turning circles with inside her womb because he's in the presence of Emmanuel. Listen to what Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 49. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Then the third thing and the final thing I think we need to look at is this. Faith in the miraculous is conceivable. The psalmist said in Psalm 77, 14 and 15, You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. You see, the longer that you're a Christian, the bigger God should appear to you and the smaller you should appear to yourself. So let me ask you, how big is your God? How big is your Savior? Is He bigger and wiser than your mind can fathom? Is, is He beyond your own ability to conceive ideas? Is the one who created life out of nothing and just the dust of the ground capable of creating life in the womb of a virgin? The Bible assures us that God is able to do immeasurably more than, than we could ask or imagine. Now, however, pride keeps a lot of people from coming to the Lord and believing in the miraculous. It's hard for some to humble themselves and to admit that, that God is much bigger than I am. He's much smarter and more powerful than I am. And when Isaiah went into the temple 
And he saw the Lord high and lifted up in his throne room. And the, the prophet immediately felt really tiny and small. And so we read there in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you see, the closer that you get to Jesus, the smaller, more inadequate, more sinful we actually feel. And the closer you get to God, the smaller you may appear to others as well. Bob Russell, who had been the preaching minister at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky for many years, he made this statement. He said, Your worldly friends may accuse you of being an intellectual midget or having emotional weaknesses and needing a crutch. So you're tempted to keep your distance from God to maintain your dignified image. But not one of those friends you're concerned about impressing have loved you enough to die for you. Not one of them can help you at all when you come to the moment of death. Not one can really transform your heart from within. It's only Jesus that can do that. So when you allow pride to keep you away from God, when you you miss out on the relationship with Him and His people and, and the benefits of the kingdom of heaven, Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's it going to take for us to live eternally? We're willing to throw off everything to do that, but simply believe in the miraculous. See, the closer you get to God, the more powerful you realize He is. And there is no miracle that is too challenging for Him to accomplish. For as the angel said, nothing is impossible with God. Being a Christian starts with faith in a huge God and a willingness to to swallow our ego. We have to humbly say that I believe God is more powerful than I am. I submit myself to his, his awesomeness and His miracle-working God, and I'll do whatever He wants me to do. Christian apologist Norm Geisler wrote these words as I kind of wrap things up. He said, God is not asking you to take a blind leap of faith in the darkness. He's asking you to take a reasonable step of faith into the light. To believe in the miracle on 34th Street It's more like a blind leap of faith. But to believe in the miracle of the virgin birth, the atoning death, and the bodily resurrection is a reasonable step of faith in the light. And if we're willing to humble ourselves, then we should have to admit that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ really did occur over 2,000 years ago. And that the miracle not only tells us something about the power of God, but also about the heart of God. Our Creator was so consumed with having a relationship with you and with me that He stooped about as low as He could go and He was put Himself into this little cell within the womb of this woman so that He might be born for our sake, that He might then die 
for our benefit, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And all of this happened as a result of a miracle on a small side street in Bethlehem. Today, if you've never stood before him and confessed Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, and that you believe in the miracle of his birth and the miracle of that incarnation of Christ, that he came into this world, and the miracle of his resurrection, what are you waiting for? Let's get rid of 2020 and throw it aside and forget everything that we would say has gone wrong with this past year, and we've got a new year that's coming up that we can start a fresh new chapter in our relationship and in our faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not just naively trusting in the impossible. It's wisely trusting in the invisible God. And God has given plenty of evidence to believe. It's not indisputable evidence or else there's no faith that's tied to it. But it is sufficient evidence to convince me that Christ came to save me. And are you willing to take that step of faith and step into the light today? Would you pray with me and think it through? Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for today. We are grateful that we can recognize that there was a miracle that was greater than one on 34th Street. And that it happened right there in that little street there in Bethlehem. Seemingly insignificant of all things that was going on, the world really did not even know what was happening. That you were entering into this world to be born a baby, to be raised by this young woman Mary and her husband Joseph. Father, that you would allow your son then to grow into manhood that he would eventually give his life for mine so that I can stand unbelievably in your presence without fear, without shame, without guilt, but, Father, filled with joy and love because of what he has done. I believe. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.